Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. President Trump's decision to host the G7 summit at his Doral Resort sparked an immediate backlash and concerns that Trump continues to dismiss. I don't think uh, you people with this phony emoluments clause, and by the way, uh, I would say that it's cost me anywhere from 2 to $5 billion to be president. And that's okay. Between uh, what I lose and what I could have made, I would have made a fortune. The president reversed himself on that decision, and a federal appeals court is now in a position to reverse itself on the question of whether Trump used his office to enrich himself in violation of the Constitution's emoluments clauses. The U.S. Appeals Court for the Fourth Circuit in Virginia has voted to rehear an emoluments case brought by the attorneys general of D.C. and Maryland on bank. Joining me is Andrew Kent, a professor at Fordham Law School. So the case will be reheard on December 12th with the full Fourth Circuit, 15 judges or more, an on-bank hearing, which is rare in any circuit. How significant is this? I think it is significant. It usually signals that there's a, you know, a pretty decent number of judges who are dissatisfied with what the three-judge panel did. So it could be bad news for President Trump, possibly. We've heard the term emoluments a lot since Trump became president. Have the legal issues around the emoluments clauses been interpreted by the courts? Very little. There's a little bit of activity, and these are the first times ever that courts have interpreted the emoluments clauses of the Constitution. There's been you know, some differences of, of opinion about it, and certainly the plaintiffs in these cases and President Trump and his lawyers have extremely different you know, views about what the emoluments clauses prohibit. Can you generally say what those views are? Sure. The president's view is is that, you know, among other things, sort of ordinary commercial transactions, you might say arm's length transactions, such as Kuwaiti and Saudi government officials staying at the Trump Hotel, which is, you know, one of the allegations in the plaintiff's complaint, they would say that those are not um, the type of thing that are covered by the clause. The clause would ban giving, you know, a cash payment to the president or something like that. But when the president is offering goods to the market generally and a foreign government happens to to purchase them, they would say that's not an emolument. And the plaintiffs have a much broader view. They essentially think that any kinds of payments, including profits from ordinary commercial transactions from foreign governments, you know, could violate the foreign emoluments clause. So with President Trump maintaining his ownership in companies that do business with foreign diplomats, it's sort of hard to see the line. Did Trump's choice of his Doral resort cross a line? You know, I think even he may have recognized that across the line since he walked it back pretty quickly. Um, you know, government ethicists were outraged about that pretty uniformly. Steering a contract to yourself is pretty much at the core of the criminal law against using the government's money. So, yeah, I think a lot of people felt that cross the line. And then depending on what the financial arrangements would have been, you know, the plaintiffs in these cases that the Fourth Circuit is hearing would also, I think, have thought that there were emoluments violations when foreign governments would have been paying Trump to stay at the Doral Resort. From everything that his acting chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, said, the president was surprised at the blowback, and the reversal wasn't based on legal considerations. It seemed to be based on political considerations. Yeah, I can't imagine how they could have truly have been surprised. It was just on its face, just pretty outrageous. 
but you know, maybe, maybe they were surprised. But you remember, this is you know the president who you know was was supposedly surprised that people were upset when he fired Jim Comey. Um, you know, that was the reporting that, that happened at the time too. So uh, you know, maybe um, the political feelers about what's gonna what's gonna seem you know really across the line to a lot of people are not what they have been for other presidents. I'm, I'm not sure. Is a violation of the emoluments clauses an impeachable offense? I would think that it certainly could be. You know, the impeachable offenses are, you know, there's obviously a lot of disagreement about it, but at its core are kind of great abuses of the office. You know, certainly abusing the office for personal gain would be at the core of, of the kinds of things that, that motivated putting the impeachment clause in the Constitution. I mean, the folks who wrote the Constitution were very worried about corruption and, and influence coming from foreign governments, because remember, the United States was quite small and weak when you know we were first independent. So it's easy to find the quotes from James Madison and people like that basically saying the president who kind of sells out the United States for the, the lucre of a foreign country should be subject to impeachment. So this, this is pretty close to the core of what impeachment is for. The Fourth Circuit hearing this case on bank is the second major setback for Trump in emoluments cases. Last month, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in Manhattan revived a similar lawsuit that had been dismissed by a federal judge. In that decision, did the Second Circuit basically criticize the Fourth Circuit? So th- there are different views between the courts. I mean, courts try to be collegial, but they can and do disagree about things. I mean, you know, I think one of the, the many things that might be why the Fourth Circuit is rehearing it is the panel opinion, the three-judge opinion, was extremely dismissive of the lawsuit. I mean, there's language in there that feels maybe even a little unnecessary, saying that basically, you know, why do Maryland and D.C. even think that this is a proper case to come to court, and almost a suggestion that they're kind of wasting the court's time by bringing the case. You know, Second Circuit has a very different view you know, the primary regulator of presidential emoluments is supposed to be Congress. You know, the Constitution suggests that Congress could decide to permit certain emoluments or gifts from foreign countries if they wanted to to the president. But simply because Congress has a, a role to play here, I don't think that means, as the Fourth Circuit suggested, that you know, there's no business at all for judicial review of the constitutionality. So, you know, they're pretty different, pretty different approaches to the sort of propriety of judicial oversight by the two courts. What is it that the appellate courts are seeing that the lower courts are not, or is it based on whether a court is more conservative or more liberal? So the issue of standing, which is the question about sort of, is this the right plaintiff to bring this claim, is one that a lot of people think is fairly political in the sense of not partisan politics, but it can be influenced by judges' predispositions and ideologies about an issue. And that's because the law is pretty mushy, and you often see a lot of 5-4 splits in the Supreme Court on standing questions. You know, so generally speaking, more liberal judges and justices tend to want the courts to be more broadly open to hear a wider range of, of kinds of claims, and especially claims maybe about government illegality. And generally speaking, more conservative judges and justices tend to want sort of stricter rules about who can come into court and fewer lawsuits about challenging government illegality. So I think with standing questions about suing a sitting president, it's probably somewhat inevitable that there might be different perspectives on the issue between you know, more liberal and more conservative justice. 
and judges. And the three judges that heard the original case in the Fourth Circuit were Republican appointees. And by an eight to seven margin, the full en banc court is just barely Democratic appointees in the majority. So just because of that and because of the nature of these standing issues and because of kind of the inherently sensitive political nature of lawsuits against the president of the United States, there could well be a shift between the, the original panel and the larger court because of the Democratic appointee majority. Another federal appeals court, the D.C. Circuit, is also considering an emoluments lawsuit. So you have these different cases bouncing back and forth from the appellate court to the district court. And in the end, is it going to the Supreme Court that makes a final decision on what violates the emoluments clauses? I would think that this is the kind of case that the Supreme Court would feel that they would need to take. You know, the court doesn't have to take almost any case. It has a wide amount of discretion. But they generally think that, you know, cases of exceptional public interest and public importance, you know, especially something like this that involves a novel clause of the Constitution being applied against a sitting president, you know, there's a lot of reasons why the Supreme Court would think that they should ultimately step in here and resolve these questions. But, Andrew, how long would it be before the Supreme Court could hear that? Might it be before the 2020 elections or not? Well, the Supreme Court has a lot of control over that. So, you know, the court can and sometimes does act exceptionally quickly when they feel the need to. So, you know, we, we all remember the litigation coming out of the contested 2000 election between Al Gore and George W. Bush. Their Supreme Court was acting within days to schedule arguments and to hear cases and issue decisions, you know, extremely quickly. The court has the ability to do that if it wants to, but they don't always want to. Um, You know, there might be reasons why they would prefer to just have a case on an ordinary schedule and let, you know, months go in between the filing of briefs and and all these things. So, you know, we shouldn't think that the court doesn't have the ability to do this fast. They do have the ability, and so they, I think, will be signaling something pretty important about their preferences, you know, when we see once they're asked to step in, whether they do so and what kind of schedule they set for themselves. Thanks, Andrew. That's Andrew Kent, a professor at Fordham Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.